Happy Friday to you. We are back with another Friday Five here on the Agent Survival Guide podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Rupel, recapping the headlines and highlights from this week. So let's get started, shall we? Number one, registration for Ritter Insurance Marketing Summits conferences is now open. We hold these annual events for our agents to gather, learn, network, and kick off the AEP season. This year, the fun begins in Baltimore, Maryland, then heads back up to Pennsylvania for stops in Philadelphia and Harrisburg. We've got two events in New York two weeks apart, and then a summit in New Jersey. All of those are on the books right now. But a little birdie might have said something about a Florida summit, so look out for more info on that to come. Summits are a fantastic opportunity to get all the info you need about the upcoming AEP season. You'll hear about 2024 Medicare Advantage and Part D plans straight from the carriers in your market. There are free continuing education credit opportunities. We hold fun giveaways and definitely the best part, you'll hear straight from our CEO, Craig Ritter. If you've heard him speak before, you know why I say this, and I know I might be a little biased, but he has a great way of making complicated topics in our industry simple and easy to understand. He's also got history in the industry and an analytical mind that can tell you much more about the implications of legislation, regulations, and what's happening right now in the Medicare market. And there's a lot going on right now. When you attend, you gain access to exclusive carrier presentations and first looks, modern marketing tips, plan and product guidance, plus catered breakfast and lunch in addition to networking opportunities and the ability to chat with our staff and get answers for your questions. To register for your spot, just head to summits.ridderim.com. Fill out the registration form and you'll be good to go. That is summits.ridderim.com, and we will have that link in the episode notes for you. Number two. On Tuesday this week, the Journal of the American Medical Association, JAMA for short, published their study on over-the-counter sleep aid gummies, and the results were not good, folks. Researchers tested 25 melatonin gummy products and found that 22 out of the 25 were not labeled correctly. 88% of products had either more than 10% melatonin or less melatonin than what was indicated on the label. Tested supplements were labeled to contain from 1.3 milligrams to 13.1 milligrams of melatonin per serving. Test results from the products showed that melatonin content levels ranged from 74% to 347% melatonin per serving compared to the labels on their packaging. Sleep aids containing melatonin are considered dietary supplements, which means that the Food and Drug Administration does not regulate them. Melatonin is a hormone that our brains produce. It's typically associated with darkness and getting the body ready for sleep. So it's recently become popular as a more natural way to relax and help those who have trouble falling asleep get a good night's rest. 
Because the supplement is not regulated by the FDA, and possibly because of the recent adoption of the hormone as a sleep aid, there's not a lot of research on dosage, side effects, long-term effects, or hormonal disruption. But that doesn't mean that melatonin use comes without risk, more so in children than in adults. Experts from Boston Children's Hospital suggest that melatonin is not a magical cure-all. Rather, it should be used in conjunction with a behavior-setting routine at bedtime. And they caution against side effects like headaches, increased bedwetting, nightmares, dizziness, mood changes, and morning grogginess in children. Peter Cohen, a Cambridge Health Alliance expert in supplement safety, wrote in the JAMA study, quote, Administration of as little as 0.1 milligram to 0.3 milligrams of melatonin to young adults can increase plasma concentrations into the normal nighttime range, end quote. Meaning that the melatonin gummies don't necessarily need to contain as much melatonin as they do. The study recommends that rather than trying to field the wide array of melatonin products on your own, that you consult your doctor for a recommendation. And if you're looking into melatonin for a child, talk with your pediatrician to see what they recommend. We will be linking to the study and a few other resources in our notes so you can learn more and share the information with your clients. Number three. Successful leaders have a lot of great features. They're smart. They strategize well. They're decisive, sometimes bold in their decision-making. But lately, we've been hearing more and more about emotional intelligence. To set it apart from intelligence quotient, or IQ, it's often referred to as EQ, short for emotional quotient. EQ, as defined by Harvard Business School, refers to, quote, the ability to understand and manage your own emotions as well as recognize and influence the emotions of those around you, end quote. As with many concepts, there are pillars to emotional intelligence, five of them in this case. An individual's EQ is made up of their self-awareness, self-regulation, motivation, empathy, and social skills. Think of these pillars as the foundation that your soft skills are built on top of. And great news, you do not have to be a leader to learn more about EQ and the areas where you can improve and strengthen some of those pillar concepts. This is something that can benefit anyone. Harvard Business School, again, for the win, has made it very easy. They've created a quiz to learn about your emotional intelligence. It consists of 25 questions, and when you click on Submit, you'll learn more about the areas where you can improve. I highly suggest taking the quiz and doing a little research in this area. That's because in a future Friday Five episode, or perhaps a standalone episode, haven't quite decided yet, we will explore the concept of emotional intelligence a little bit more. We'll take a look at either all of the pillars together or possibly one pillar per episode. Depends on how far down the rabbit hole I go. And if you've been listening for any length of time, I do enjoy my rabbit holes. Number four. 
I love a good research study, and the Pew Research Center recently conducted one on podcast listening that yielded some interesting findings. The biggest takeaway, front and center on the release reporting on the study, a lot of people listen to podcasts. A lot of people can name a podcast they listen to frequently, but their answers? Very, very diverse, and I absolutely love that for podcasting. Number-wise, when asked about podcast listening, about 23% of respondents said that they weren't currently listening to a podcast. 14% did not name a podcast they were currently listening to. Less than 1% gave no answer. And then 61% of respondents named a show as one they listened to the most. The respondents who could name a show they listened to most were then asked to put that most listened to show into a topic category. 20% of those shows covered politics and government. 12% focused on entertainment, pop culture, and the arts. Another 12% were comedy podcasts. 9% of shows were true crime, which, side note, lower on the list than I thought it would be, but still high. 8% of podcasts were about religion and spirituality. 6% listened for self-help and relationships. Another 6% for sports. 5% for money and finance. And then another 5% for science and technology shows. 3% of pods featured history as their main topic, 2% were health and fitness shows, 1% of shows focused on race and ethnicity, and then 12% of shows fell into a miscellaneous something else category. And keep in mind, those categories are not necessarily in line with the same categories a podcast uses to define their content. The report focused on categories that listeners attributed to the show, so not necessarily indicative of how shows are classified in podcast directories. Interesting findings nonetheless, and we will be linking to that report in the notes. Number five, we all knew the days of password sharing on Netflix were numbered. Now, the countdown is on. In their most recent earnings report, the streaming service announced that the end of password sharing would be coming for U.S. customers by the end of June. Previously, Netflix had named the end of March as the date the crackdown would begin. Obviously, that date has come and gone. In the earnings call last week, co-CEO Greg Peters said, quote, That launch we're doing in Q2 is a very broad launch. It includes the United States. It includes many, many other countries, end quote. Peters also addressed potential backlash to the rollout of this new stipulation, comparing it to backlash over previous price increases, quote, Very much like a price increase, we see an initial cancel reaction, and then we build out of that both in terms of membership and revenue as borrowers sign up for their own Netflix accounts and existing members purchase that extra member facility for folks who they want to share with, end quote. No news yet on what the cost structure will look like when Netflix rolls out the new plans. For comparison's sake, though, I did want to look at what they currently offer. Right now, Netflix offers four different pricing tiers. 
Standard with ads at $6.99 per month. Basic for $9.99 a month. Standard for $15.49 per month. And then premium for $19.99 per month. So far, as I mentioned, the monthly charge for an extra member has not been revealed, nor have many details about which Netflix subscriptions will be able to add members to their accounts. We're not totally lost for information, though. In a blog post from March of 2022, Netflix announced testing of the new feature in Chile, Costa Rica, and Peru. They also gave us a few details that may or may not stay the same here in the U.S., Plan members with standard and premium Netflix accounts were listed as eligible to add extra members, with both plans able to add what Netflix calls a sub-account. Each standard and premium level account would have the ability to add two sub-accounts, and Netflix is considering that to be two people that do not live in the same household as the original account holder. Subaccounts in the test were described as having their own profile, personalized recommendations, login, and password, so essentially functioning as a standalone account with one profile. Cost-wise, the addition of an extra member varies quite a bit so far from country to country. The option is around $3 U.S. per month for Costa Rica, Chile, and Peru where the feature was first tested. Canadians pay about $6 U.S. per month. In New Zealand, the feature costs about $5 USD per month. In Portugal, the option is a little over $4 U.S. monthly, while in Spain, you'll pay closer to $7 U.S. per month. It'll be interesting to see how the rollout will go over, and of course, we will report back here on all the details as soon as they are available. Rupel recommends. Not a whole lot coming to streaming for May 2023 that I am interested in. I'm really hoping that there are plans for a better summer schedule because the pickings have been slim lately. That being said, I am starting out with two box office picks. In theaters, this week is the opening weekend for Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret, the coming-of-age novel penned by Judy Bloom. Also in theaters, it is week three for the Super Mario Brothers movie, which has been dominating at the box office. And if you've managed to escape the Peaches song from the movie, well, you are very lucky because it is an earworm that my daughter has been singing nonstop for the past week, including remixes. As far as streaming goes, not too much to be excited about, as I just said, but May the 4th will give us some new Star Wars content on Disney+. We'll get Star Wars Visions Volume 2, that is the second season of the series that features short films with new characters in the Star Wars universe in a variety of animation styles. And then the other is Star Wars Young Jedi Adventures, a cartoon that follows Jedi younglings on their adventures 200 years prior to the events of The Phantom Menace. Also on May 4th, over on Netflix, Queen Charlotte, a Bridgerton story, debuts. If that is not Netflix coming for Star Wars on their own fan-created holiday, I'm not sure what is. 
I have yet to watch the original Bridgerton series, but I have seen previews of this series all over social media, and it looks good. Just might be my gateway into the series. May 10th on Disney+, Plus, season 20 of Life Below Zero. My mom absolutely loves that show. Not my genre, but she really enjoys it, and she loves disaster movies as well. Same day, same streaming service, all of the episodes of The Muppets Mayhem, chronicling the adventures of the Electric Mayhem Band. May 17th, also on Disney+, Plus, four more episodes of Saturdays, a show about three tween girls who hang out in a roller rink and love to skate. Great series, so glad they'll be releasing more episodes of that. And then my final selection, May 18th, XO Kitty the spinoff to the Two All the Boys series, which I hear is popular, have also not yet watched that series yet. But I am excited to report I finally am able to start watching the Shadow and Bone series because I finished the trilogy of books somehow managing to avoid spoilers. So now it's time to finally watch the show. Still no word on the Uglies series for Netflix. That is the adaptation of the Scott Westerfeld book series of the same name. I have been waiting on a release date. It's supposed to come out sometime this year. It's set to star Joey King, but so far, mums and more mums have been the word. And that is all I have for you this week. I hope you have a great weekend. Stay healthy and stay safe out there. And we will see you next week. The Agent Survival Guide podcast is a production of Ritter Insurance Marketing, an integrity company. This episode was written and produced by me, Sarah Rupel. Script editing and fact check by Tina Lamaru. Podcast design by Urban Rivera. Artwork by Vivian Zhao. Follow along with us wherever you like to listen. 